Hello and welcome back to another episode of Control-Alt-Delete. This is the podcast where I interview experts, thought leaders, writers and creatives about the internet, their careers and everything in between. This episode is a special live recording of Control-Alt-Delete in partnership with NatWest. I recently featured in a video with NatWest and Refinery29, looking at the challenges the modern workforce faces with a spotlight on finances. We discussed mental health, late payments, and how to prepare to quit your job. So very much up the street of this podcast, but this time I wanted to ask two very knowledgeable people their thoughts. So it was recorded live with NatWest at Rocket Space in London with Polly McKenzie and Atega Uagba, and we discussed some of the insights from the early stages piece of research from NatWest and Demos. They've been doing some really interesting research into the financial lives of the modern liquid workforce. The aim of the research was to identify what changes the financial services industry could do to improve the financial lives of people like myself and I'm sure many of you listening to this podcast The liquid workforce is actually a term I hadn't heard of before, but it's an umbrella term for a variety of jobs that don't fit the traditional nine to five. So gig economy workers, partial freelancers, self-employed people of all different types. And in many ways, it's such a great time to be freelance. And I obviously, having written a whole book on, on the kind of benefits of it, absolutely love it but it also has its challenges and it still has its downsides and our working lives and working cultures continue to change and evolve all the time. So in this episode we discuss some of the sectors that are slightly behind the curve in catering for us the self-employed people be that the childcare services or housing or banking. So in this episode Otega and Polly they just spread so much wisdom and advice and I think you're going to really enjoy it. Atega Uagba is the founder of Women Who and the author of the forthcoming book, We Need to Talk About Money, which I cannot wait to read. It's out next year. And Polly McKenzie is the CEO of Demos and founder of the Money and Mental Health Policy Institute, a charity that works to break the link between financial difficulty and mental health problems. So I hope you enjoyed this episode. I'll stop waffling now and make sure you rate or review the episode if you enjoyed it. Thanks again to NatWest and NatWest Business for sponsoring this episode and making it happen. And I will see you next week. So just to kick off, um, I wanted to ask you, Otega, what sort of myths did you have in mind around freelancing? Like, what were you kind of sold as the dream? What have you now uncovered is like some of the truths behind it? Because we have a bit in common where we three years ago left our jobs and and went into this world of self-employment? I think one of the biggest myths is probably that you will work less. I've found that since I became self-employed, I probably work more or work slightly longer hours, but it's doing stuff that I enjoy more or it's doing it in a more flexible way. But I think... I had this impression that it would just be very sort of you go straight in and you kind of work a day here, work a day there and it sort of makes your income. And in some ways, you know, I'm able to work from anywhere. So I kind of travel a lot and I'll just take my laptop with me and, you know, I can write an article from anywhere. But um, I do think maybe it's the nature of what I do, but I kind of tend to work Overall, I feel like slightly more, but in a sort of more enjoyable way. I feel like work maybe slightly seeps into more of my time. I don't know whether that's similar to what you found. No, that that does make sense. And I think it's um, 
it's also what I find really interesting is I have like people that think I'm a workaholic and I work 24-7 and I have no life and I'm like, wow, she's obsessed with her job. And then I also have people in the Sunday Times comment section on my column who think I'm the laziest person in the world and that I do no work because I'm just like a freelancer in my pyjamas. So I'm like, okay, there must be a middle ground there. Um, but Polly, with, with like the practical side of being self-employed, what do you think people overlook? You know, sometimes I remember this when I was a reporter which was my first ever job is I I did so I worked on a magazine called Property Week and I wrote this freelance article for uh, the some pub like magazine and I was like I've got paid 300 pounds for one article that's amazing and I I don't think I kind of quite understood that when you're a freelancer yes you get 300 pounds for only one article but that's because you're responsible for all of your business development all of your holiday all of your sick pay all of your pension and and this kind of like i know the sort of ticket price of like 300 pounds for any one article is like no actually it's completely different and i think often when people have sort of built up a self-employment income through side hustle is that actually pivoting over to to being entirely reliant on your own business development uh, can be quite challenging. I think people need to kind of work out first the first thing you need to know is what is your kind of fear level of income? What is the exact amount of money you need to be able to pay your rent or your mortgage and pay your essential bills and how are you going to make that? And until you've got that kind of fear leveling income sort of secured, um, then you kind of you need to do more mm. planning uh, and more development and you also you need to have a budget for how you're going to manage on that level of income because the other thing I think people don't factor in is quite how long it can take to get paid um you know I run I run a small business uh, a charity and my trustees are endlessly suggesting to me you ought to extend your payments help you manage your cash flow if you only pay people after 60 or 90 days I'm like no absolutely no but it's really really normal and actually the bigger the company the more likely they are to uh, have kind of standard cash flow management of paying their invoices in 90 days and again like those kind of things you don't you don't really think about mm-hmm. until you're until you're there and you're on the phone with the accounts department and you're like give me my money yeah it's really really true because I suppose one question I wanted to ask you both actually is how it is different from having a, a salary because when I talk to kind of young graduates who immediately want to be a freelancer, I do sort of think, obviously you do you, but I'm really glad that I had a salary and I had all that structure and I understand that the tax gets taken out before they pay you and all this stuff, just knowing some sort of benchmark for what my salary could be. I think when I first became self-employed, I slightly kind of missed knowing what I was going to be earning sort of for I guess for like a chunk of time it's maybe like six months or a year um as I've kind of gotten into it and become more comfortable with it I've become much more comfortable with the fact that actually sometimes I might get paid sort of six months worth of my like living expenses or whatever in one chunk another time and then you know I might not get very much for you know for whatever reason um so I've become much more comfortable with what my uh, accountant calls uh, a lumpy salary or sort of you know it's kind of comes in like chunks and waves um and the way that I mitigate that is by paying myself the same every month and also actually having had a salary you know before you know sort of full-time salary kind of has helped me figure out how much money I kind of need to live on and kind of roughly what I should be spending and what kind of salary gives me X sort of lifestyle. So what I do 
what I do is I set my salary at the same amount every month. Um, and so I get paid by clients or whoever into my business bank account. And then it that's, has a direct debit that gets paid into my personal bank account, which is separate. Um, and I don't change that amount, really. Um, even if I get like a really good month where I get you know, loads of money, like a huge chunk of cash, I don't then pay myself more or I try not to I might maybe like sort of treat myself or something but um, if I'm being honest but um, generally I kind of pay myself the same amount and you know if I have a couple of months where I'm not making very much money I just kind of keep going and pay myself the same amount and I find that that kind of helps to even it out and I think the most important thing is it stops me from getting carried away if I get a, a sort of lump sum and I also uh, every like month or every two months I go into my account and um, figure out how much Revenue, I guess I've gotten and set aside a proportion of it for tax. So I do that as the year goes through. So actually, by the time I get to the end of the year, every year that I've had to pay my tax bill, I've always ended up getting some money back because I've always oversaved. Um, and then, because I think my sort of worst fear is kind of getting caught short with a tax bill that I can't pay. So I always kind of tend to oversave a bit more. And then I get like a nice little surprise around tax time. Whereas lots of other people are sort of like feeling a bit stressed about it um so that's kind of how I mitigate having this kind of uneven salary so with some of the research in demos uh, from the demos and natwest survey one of the things that I kind of pulled out was that the liquid workforce are really concerned about money you kind of think yeah there's a lot of people not getting on very well in this in this workforce and actually there's a lot more that the financial industries can do to help what do you think at the moment is kind of missing so Um, this term liquid workforce kind of covers a huge range of people, including some people who are really quite well off, uh, very comfortably off, and some people who are absolutely kind of scraping by. Uh, And the two things that characterise the whole group, two characteristics, one is exactly what Teg is just talking about, that lumpiness of income, uh, which requires sometimes credit products or loans, uh, requires you to save up money, requires you to do sort of cash management and planning, and that comes with a kind of cognitive burden. Um, you've got to think about it. And, and that's particularly stressful if you're on a, a really low income, obviously, and, you know, 50 quid here or there is the difference between being able to keep the lights on, keep the heating on, feed your kids. Um, and the other thing that characterises them is they're really really struggling with saving and that's true right up the income scale so if you take somebody who's earning like a hundred thousand pounds as a freelancer somebody who's earning a hundred thousand pounds as a as an employee uh they the the freelancer is probably saving about 10 percent to 20 percent less for their pension um and that's for a whole kind of host of reasons partly because employees are now kind of opted in to a pension it's done by default for you but it's also because uh Every person in the liquid workforce who's a freelancer knows exactly what Ortega's been talking about is you're not quite sure where the next money's going to come from. And so if you don't know if you're going to have a contract by the time it's November, do you really want to lock your money up for when you're 65? But over the course of a lifetime, that decision not to lock money up means that you turn 65 and freelancers are again much more likely to carry on working into retirement because they... Maybe that's a good thing. I... um, I was doing Sky News on Friday, and the makeup artist was 76. Uh, she was fantastic. She was telling me about like 
we, like horrifyingly, the first show she ever worked on as a BBC trainee was on the Black and White Minstrel Show, which suggests that she trained a really, really long time ago. Um, uh, and, and she said she still works to pay the bills. And I said, do you wish you didn't have to? And she said, mm, no, actually, I'm glad that I'm still out there. Uh, but that pension savings thing is really, really kind of structurally a problem. And I think supporting people to be able to find the kind of model that Otega's talking about, where you do, you've got your business account and then you're sort of treating yourself as an employee of yourself, mm-hmm. uh, is really valuable and helping people to default into things like pensions. Because um, actually, uh, there's this phrase, isn't there, be your own boss. And I think sometimes people forget to actually be their own boss. They just think that freelancing is just sort of doing what you like. But actually, a good boss is great they set objectives for you they opt you into a pension they do all sorts of things they help you uh, with training and support and uh, you know so if you're going to be your own boss you should be a really good one Uh, and and I think people sometimes forget that actually managing yourself is like a part of a job Mm -hmm. Um, and and it's not all it's not all just kind of doing what you feel like every day I feel quite attacked. <laughs> I'm joking, but I'm, I'm not a good boss to myself. Or hire a coach. Like I, I, I'm an employee, right? And I have a, I have a coach because, frankly, I can't be held accountable yeah. by myself. I'm rubbish at it. It's I'm so like, true, though. I, I need deadlines, you know? And so I need deadlines. I need somebody saying, why didn't you do that? I'd be a dreadful freelancer. But it's, it's such a good point because I think, um, you know, being like a creative person or being whatever person, doing your job and being good at your job isn't the same as being a good boss necessarily. I mean, I've managed some people in my past and I'm so sorry to those people. Um, it's just not, you know, you're either good at it or you're not, I, I think, in, the, in some cases. But that leads me on really nicely to my next question because, Otego, with you, and this is a question I get asked a lot, so I'm just like palming it onto you for a second, but with being your own boss, like you're kind of your invoice chaser, you're... I know that sometimes, you know, we can outsource, but you are your own motivator, you're your own creative director, you you know, the list goes on and on and on with the things that you are for your business. How do you wear all of those different hats at once or have you learned anything about that? Um, That's a really good question. I think it helps, like personally, I think it helps me slightly is that I, most of those things I enjoy. The things that I either don't enjoy I think I try and figure out what and this is something I've been doing more is what does it make more sense for me to kind of outsource like you said so like I mean I think every freelancer should really have an accountant unless you're you know unless it's very much a kind of like small side thing that you're just kind of doing on the side but if your main kind of income is coming through self-employment then you need an accountant and a, a decent one because they can help you figure out how to I mean, basically stay on the right side of a tax man. And I personally don't think it's worth your time or the kind of uh, potential for kind of error um, and the potential to kind of lose money, maybe kind of paying where you don't have to pay certain fees um, to kind of avoid having an accountant. And I generally think most accountants kind of like pay for themselves essentially. And that's, that's what I've found. Um, but that aside, I think, yeah, it's kind of figuring out where, you know, instead of spending time kind of chasing invoices, can you get software? So I use, you know, online software to kind of do all of my accounting and like 
invoices and it keeps track of all that for me. So I don't have spreadsheets anymore. I just have online software. And if something's kind of gone overdue, then it will kind of remind me. I can even, I still haven't done this actually, but I can set it up to kind of automatically remind the person. But for some reason, I just haven't done it because I quite and like... Is it really passive aggressive? Like, yeah. Set well, up I, a little notification? Yeah, basically you can set it up. But I quite like reminding people personally. Um, so... Um, I have I have heard though that you should kind of it should be someone else because for some reason even though they respect you as the person they're working yeah. with having like some person my friend has made up an email address yeah a guy called Nigel who <laughs> chases her invoices That's and, really and Nigel's horrible yeah I and mean, um they pay them on time no I can totally imagine um but I think just yeah just kind of trying to figure out kind of efficiencies like that and figuring out what I'm not, you know, what I'm not skilled enough to do, which is accounting and what I'm not good enough at and stuff like design as well. Like, you know, kind of, there's a lot of design work that goes into women who and, and recently I kind of hired a designer to kind of take it on and just like outsourcing a little bits of admin and copywriting and that sort of thing and just kind of figuring out where you can be more efficient so that the thing that you do that makes you money or that makes you the most money is what you spend most of your time doing. That's kind of what I'm, an exercise that I'm trying to, constantly trying to figure out Mm, thank you super interesting and with um polly with the idea of like promotion and pay rises uh i guess in a kind of salaried job you would there's like a really good structure to that and actually debbie in the audience has a 12 point bullet pointed structure on how to ask for a pay rise sorry people are going to ask you for that now (laughs) um but if you work for yourself how how would you kind of go about that oh well there's two things one is uh actually working out how much you kind of ought to be extracting from your business how much needs to kind of stay in to um in order to be able to invest to grow the business or maybe pay pay somebody else pay an accountant and that's obviously a conversation you just need to have with yourself about how much how much you value yourself um but i think what's much harder is to put up your prices with clients uh and we um so the the charity i run we we recently changed our day rates and you know often that's that's basically the conversation you have to have and i think it's it's frightening but um i think part of the conversation is is trying to find a way to explain to the person who is going to be paying your contract not how much you deserve that's a conversation to have with yourself but how much value you are going to add to them uh and if you can, so I, this coach that I work with, she um, uh, a few years ago basically just doubled her doubled her rates, uh, and she she worked out some example kind of cases of when she had added value to a particular business from the coaching that she had offered, um, and she used that as a case study, and she was comfortable losing some of her business because of it. And that's why you need to kind of, going back to the first thing I said, you need to work out what your fear level of income is and how are you going to secure that? And can you like divide up your clients between the ones that are really, really reliable uh, and the ones that you're going to keep on your kind of existing day rate and then the ones who you're willing to take a punt on? My mum, who, uh, you know, weird career trajectory, she started out as a surgeon and she quit to become an upholsterer um, because she only liked sewing. Um, attention to detail must be really good um, but so she basically she was a traditional upholsterer she wanted to do things with like horsehair and springs uh, very old fashioned and so if anybody ever came to her with a chair that was post 1950 she would charge four times as much because she said if 
they say, yes, it's ludicrous. And at least I'm getting paid well to do the work that I don't like. Um, and actually sort of starting out with the work that you don't really want and kind of testing the market. I think often people are surprised by discovering how much the market will bear. There's this sort of... Um, it's obviously an apocryphal story, but uh, of like some... Uh, power station it's broken and it's not working and some man comes in with a hammer and he hits one pipe somewhere and suddenly the power station comes back online and he says that's 40,000 pounds and the the person who hired him said but it only took you two minutes he's like no uh, that is an entire lifetime of knowing exactly where to hit right and that's where you're adding value that's the story that you need to tell um and yeah segregate your clients have confidence uh, mostly have confidence in yourself. Mm. So interesting. I mean, I've heard stories of people who do say that if they don't want to do the job, like they categorically don't want to do it, and they've hit their threshold of like having their minimum for the for the month, they will just quote something ridiculous and just see, see what happens. Because you, if you're preparing yourself for a no, yes, or a maybe, with. Um, you know, dreaded imposter syndrome, because you just said about you know it's not about your self worth. There are a lot of women becoming self-employed. I don't have the statistics off the top of my head, but just there's a huge kind of rush of people uh, moving into this space, and a lot of them are women. Do you think that that is a conversation we need to be having about the kind of... It's not about your self-worth, the money. It's about the value of like your actual net worth for doing the job. Um, yeah, um, so I think, I think it's really interesting. I'm, I'm trying to figure out why so many women are becoming self-employed um, because you kind of hear different things and I think over time it's changed I read this really interesting article like a week or two ago and in some ways I think there's plenty of opportunity in it in sort of being self-employed but also in other ways it feels like certain businesses and certain companies aren't structuring themselves in a way that is welcoming to their female workforce aren't nurturing and encouraging them and so a lot of women are then saying okay well I'm going to strike out on my own like to be honest that's that's my story I didn't feel particularly um I guess nurtured in in the jobs I was doing and so kind of just you know went freelance and have kind of made that work but um I think it's yeah I think it's I think in some but also I think the beauty of that is I have way more um confidence and a sense of my own value as an employee or as, as not an employee but as someone you know who who can be hired for stuff um and or as a writer or as a creative I, I feel very much like okay I know exactly what value I add because I actually have to sit down and calculate that on a regular basis like you know I have to sit down and think of a project for you or a commission for you or whatever um so I think there is something to be said in kind of you know I don't know what the phrase is, kind of like hunt what you, you know, eat what you hunt or eat what you kill, you know, kind of going out and kind of getting your own business, getting your own work and seeing how far you can push yourself. Um, I found that quite a um, exhilarating part of being self-employed, actually, yeah. Because with, with some of the wider infrastructure issues with the workplace, one of the things I'd, I'd written down is childcare. Mm. So it, it makes sense then if you can freelance and be more flexible for, your, for yourself then maybe more women who are mums as well would, would want that. But also how, housing and also under that um, getting mortgages and I know that there's still this whole thing of if you're self-employed it can be quite hard to get on that ladder. It feels like the self-employment realm like everyone's moving very quickly and then everything else is trying to catch up. Yeah, that, uh, that's certainly the case. I mean, this is the growth part of our labour market. And it's, the, the data really do suggest that um, 
lots and lots of people join the liquid workforce because of their need for flexibility, which conventional employment is struggles to to accommodate. Um, and that there's not people with childcare needs, people with elderly relatives they need to care for, uh, people with health conditions. Um, so in some research I did at Money and Mental Health, uh, one of the challenges for a self-employed person, because when people are depressed, they often find it hard to motivate themselves around money, whether that's budgeting or, in this case, a guy who was a carpenter, and he hadn't issued an invoice for six months. He'd carried on working, but he just kind of somehow and run out of money because that paperwork was 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 such a kind of burden but um and so so you do see a kind of a, a different pattern of need among people in in this in this workforce and that means uh that the damage i guess that can be caused by not being able to access housing can be even even higher i mean in mortgages uh one of the challenges uh is that you have to pay the same amount of money for your mortgage every month um and that's really tough for somebody whose income goes up and down. And there, I mean, there are some sort of savings-linked mortgages out there, but the idea, there just isn't anything which allows you to pay more in the good times and, and pay a bit less in the bad times. There, there might be a nice, flexible person you can call up, but you know, the idea of building a genuinely flexible mortgage for people doesn't exist. I think one of the areas that our researchers suggested there's an even sharper problem is around rent, where... Uh, lot, increasingly people are being asked to certify their income in order to get a rental contract, just as you might for a mortgage. And they're not able to prove that they've paid their rent in the past. Uh, and if you can't certify your income with pay slips, then you're just being rejected. Um, and in an intensive rental market like we see in London, that can be extremely dif- difficult for people. So one of the changes that needs to happen is allow people to kind of register their rent payments on a month-by-month basis with a credit rating agency like Experian or Equifax. Um, so that when you're looking for a new landlord, you can say, look, I pay my rent. Because that's all they need to know. We know that some self-employed people have been asked to give uh, their... like live access to their bank account mm. in order to get a rental contract and the kind of the privacy implications of that are horrific um so but we think there are kind of policy changes that would help especially the emotional attachment we all have to money it's someone prying into your bank account in that amount of detail like it is going to make you feel weird Totally, totally. I definitely don't want anyone looking at my bank account. Yeah. I'm like, I didn't order another Nando's delivery. <laughs> um, so I wanted to ask you, seeing as it's summer and August is coming up and, you know, we're taking holidays, hopefully, um, this year, how do you plan ahead? And this is a question for both of you when you're kind of doing something and, you know, life milestones, for example, people, you know, apparently getting married is back in fashion with millennials at the moment. Um, so, you know, saving for big occasions and things like that. How do you manage that? I'm generally a big saver and always have been. So that I find sort of quite... Um, it's Yeah, I tend to... In terms of the kind of the income I get, I put aside money for tax and then I pay myself. And whatever the difference is between that, I sort of save. Um, so if I then kind of need to dip in for like a sort of like holiday fund, and I also pay myself quite a modest amount as well um, because I figure I might as well kind of be a little bit stricter with myself month on month. And then if I kind of want to treat myself to something nice, want to go on holiday, I've got a wedding to go to, then that money is there. In terms of, I think the thing that is probably um, difficult, and I've noticed this when I've gone, you know, on holidays and like, 
maybe go over two weeks kind of is the loss of income over that month because really you're winding down because you're not taking on projects in the couple of days of the week leading up to it you're, you're not because you're like well I'm going to be away in, in two weeks time and one week's time and then also once you're back you're kind of like winding up so I feel like that is probably the thing to bear in mind um, and also to just kind of as much as you can kind of try and forecast and kind of store up as much cash as you can so if you know you're going away let's say you know it's we're now in July and you knew you were going away in September or October it's kind of planning it quite far in advance so that you don't find yourself just like essentially missing like a payment cycle for a month because you haven't got any work coming in that month so I think there is kind of what you're talking about um, earlier when you're self-employed there is a greater deal of financial planning maybe that kind of has to go I, I think about money a lot more um, than I did when I had just like a salary that gets replenished every month come you know come what may um, but I also I don't think that has to be a bad thing and I'm much more in touch with my money and I kind of think I have a better sense of the value of money and I'm like that's going to cost me this or you know I kind of think about it that way so I think that's just how to prepare for those bigger milestones I think I mean I would just completely agree with everything you've said I think pensions are the thing that very very easily gets forgotten in all of that uh, and so the sort of uh, the basic rule of thumb is if you start saving at 20 you should save 10% of your income if you start saving at 30 you should save 20% of your income start saving at 40 30% um, and you know it's, exactly you say these people will be like what what are you talking about um, and it's really you know because once you've got tax and then you've got the fact that of holiday pay then sick day sick pay like the average person takes nine sick days no, that's in the public sector. Average person, six days, I think, six days a year. And now that, that's an average, right? And there's loads of really healthy people who take zero sick days or one sick day. Uh, and then there's people who get cancer and take 18 months off work. And if that happens to you when you're freelance, you are screwed, right? So you haven't protected yourself against that. Another kind of gap in the policy landscape is there aren't really insurance products that work to protect you from serious illness um or and even if it's just you know you break your leg and you can't go out and do business development meetings for six weeks you know like that can have a just massive massive impact and so the amount of your money you know that 300 pounds i got for my article uh, back when i was 22 you know probably two-thirds of your money needs to go to something other than paying your bills and going out and you know and living and and that's that's kind of weird and it's so easy when you're employed to have all of like quite a lot of that stuff is taken away from you you've got more rights you've got more protection you might even have kind of employer sickness insurance and they take them tax they take the tax away they never give it to you um and there's so this this thing in behavioral economics around um loss aversion is that once you've got your hands on something it feels worse to give it away than uh, the emotions that encourage you to get something and so that whole the whole process of being given your money and then having to give some of it back again is emotionally traumatizing basically and so what Otega does of like basically just not letting herself see that money is probably really valuable but you shouldn't let yourself see your pension either and you shouldn't let your, you've got to have a rainy day savings and it's it's so much more money than feels comfortable yeah wow okay I'm inspired <laughs> um yeah you're you're absolutely right and I think as well there's one thing that I want to do way more of in terms of like talking to other people and and kind of spreading 
like doing workshops or, or something around like passive income because there are so many ways to be knowledgeable and skillful and be good at your job where you do something once and then you get paid monthly and if you are ill or you take two months off actually you've got people downloading your course or you've got someone paying for this thing and you don't necessarily need to be there in person even though that's slightly black mirror so when we sent out the Eventbrite to you guys, uh, we sent out a little survey and some of you asked in questions. I'm just going to ask one of those now and then I'm going to open it up to you. Um, and I tell you, I think it was for you and it was around um, it was around sort of standing out because if, you know, a lot of people are becoming self-employed, that means more competition. We all know that, you know, you go on the internet and it's just like people screaming at you every day. Um, or fighting for attention, to be more diplomatic. Um, so I just wondered, you've done a lot of courses on personal branding and you talk a lot about that. What do you think, for someone starting out, I know it's a really hard question, but is there anything that comes to mind? Yeah, I think there is a bit of a temptation to be like, I do everything and I can do anything, but actually it means it makes it really hard for people to pigeonhole you into, let's say you're you know, a writer and you write about fashion you write about food you write about travel you write about you know money you write about all these things I think it can be a little bit harder when let's say an editor is looking to commission they're like who should I pick you know they kind of like I've got a fashion story that I want writing who's the like fashion girl I feel like kind of basically figuring out what your niche is and kind of doubling down on that and trying to just pick like two or three specialities and that applies to lots of things not just writing you could be illustrator you could be a web developer and you're like okay well I tend to build e-commerce websites and that kind of tends to be my thing and then more people tend to know that okay if I'm looking for an e-commerce that's the person I need to go to I think just really kind of trying to think about what you're gonna uh, I guess specialise in a little bit and what is going to what you're going to become the kind of go-to girl the go-to guy about is a really good way of and you know that can change over time I know my thing has changed over time and I'm thinking about it constantly but um, I think just yeah not trying to do kind of everything and be everything to everyone is really important thank you all so so much for coming thank you for being really honest and being great panelists thank you all for coming out on a what day is it tonight thank you um and you can listen to the podcast back or share it with your friends or with your employers so thank you all for coming and have more drinks thank you thank you